2 Peter chapter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they will deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do with other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, Dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Through Peter chapter 3, uh, we're going to be focusing particularly on verses 11 to 18 this evening. Everyone in one way or another lives in the present in light of the future. So if you're expecting a baby, for example, you get your home ready. You buy the clothes, the cot, the car seat, whatever else you might think you might need. Or if you've booked an exotic summer holiday, you might start going to the gym to get your, your, your body beach ready for all those selfies you imagine you're going to be taking. Or if you're approaching retirement, You start to think about the provisions you've made for it. You think about what hobbies you're going to pick up in said retirement. On and on we could go. People live in the present in light of the future. That's just the way it is. And you know, that's precisely the logic of the Christian life. We're to live now in light of then. 
And we're jumping in tonight right at the end of 2 Peter. But Peter's been developing this theme right throughout his letter. Read the whole letter when you get home and, and you'll see how clearly that's the case. And so the future for Peter is constantly in view. Back in chapter 1, verse 11, for example, he he speaks of the rich welcome that believers will receive into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or as we read earlier at the start of chapter 3, he speaks of the coming day of judgment, a theme also at large in chapter 2. There is a future that's coming. And Peter is concerned with how his Christian readers live now in light of it. He exhorts them, for example, to be, to be diligent to increase in godly virtues or to trust in God's utterly trustworthy words or to reject the lies of false teachers. And these two horizons are, are inextricably intertwined. We live now in light of them. And now as Peter draws the threads together in his letter, that connection becomes abundantly clear. He wants his readers to have have a laser-like focus on the future that transforms their lives in the here and now. And so tonight, I simply want to explore that theme under two simple headings. The first of which is this, look forwards to the future. Look forwards to the future, verses 11 to 13. If you stop to consider our world for too long, you may well find yourself despairing very quickly. This world is a troubled world. On the macro level, think of the wars we see, whether nation fighting nation, as in Ukraine, or civil war in places like Sudan, such human cost, countless senseless deaths, families displaced, livelihoods ruined. Or think of the societal problems we see, even in nations that that are peaceful like our own. Think of the steady flow of, of people trafficking into our country. Those made in the image of God, treated like like dirt as slaves. Whatever you make of the government's policy, we all want to stop the boats, right? Or consider the damage being done to our children as they're bombarded with lies about sexuality and gender. The most vulnerable in society, those we should be protecting, being told that wrong is right and right is wrong. Of course, with such huge damage to young lives. At its worst, think Tavistock Centre. On and on we could go, listing injustice after injustice that we see across society. We think of those unfairly convicted of crimes, or or those taken advantage of by those of power, or those paid so poorly that they, they can scarcely afford to eat. This world is a troubled world. But if that's not bad enough, we see it on the micro level in our own personal lives, don't we? We find ourselves the victims of others' sins. Whether that's family breakdown and and all its horrid fallouts, or careless drivers who crash into your car, or or unscrupulous bosses paying you unfairly, placing undue demands, exploding in uncontrollable fits of rage. That's, of course, to say nothing of your own sin and its ugly effects in your life and inflicted on others. The greed, the pride, the selfishness, the covetousness, you, you name it. How often do we want to cry out, oh, wretched man or woman that I am. Not only that, but we're confronted by disease and death, both for ourselves and our loved ones. And often it comes in such cruel ways, doesn't it? The ongoing anguish of a mental health struggle, the slow torture of a a disease like Alzheimer's, stripping you slowly, step by step. 
or unexpected diseases. Think lung cancer for the non-smoker or heart attack to the young person. There's so much suffering in our world that, that perhaps our only mercy is that we don't have the capacity to take it all in ourselves. It's as though this world is, is creaking at the seams. Such a troubled world, a veil of tears. We might be tempted to normalize it, to say, oh, that's just the way it is. But really, we're right to despair. Things shouldn't be this way. Because life is lived in the shadow of the fall. A shadow bringing bringing darkness right over the whole world. Unrighteousness seems to prevail. All the troubles we see, they are consequences of unrighteousness. Whether directly, think war, or indirectly, think disease. And so the question then is, what future is there for this world? After all, things look just so out of control, don't they? Unrighteousness seems rampant. Is there any future at all? I mean, we say God's in control, don't we? But but it doesn't always look that way. I mean, just look at the church in our world. We see those falling foul of of blasphemy laws in Pakistan. Or, Or those being kidnapped, tortured, killed by Boko Haram in Nigeria. Those falling foul of conversion therapy laws in parts of the secular world. Now, what future is there for this world? Will things continue as they are? Will they spiral ever downwards? Should we just walk out of here tonight, just left in a pit of despair? Go home wallowing in all our troubles? Well, Peter sweeps all of those worries aside tonight. He says to us, God has a glorious promised plan for this world that will be brought to pass. It comes on what verse 12 calls the day of God. Or more commonly called the day of the Lord, like you see back in verse 10. A moment of of decisive intervention from God. Bringing salvation for the godly. And judgment for the wicked. Indeed, that day will be a day of destruction for this world. Verse 11 says, everything will be destroyed in this way. The way described, again, back in verse 10. With the heavens disappearing with a roar. The elements destroyed by fire. It's calamitous language that's describing the destruction that's coming. With everything that's been done on this earth laid bare before Almighty God. Because nothing's hidden on that day from God's all-seeing eye. All stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Judged according to His perfect standard of righteousness. I mean, that's good news in a world of injustice, isn't it? Justice will be done. The day of God is coming, that day of total destruction. But don't think of it as a day when that's it for this world. As though some some divine nuclear button will be pressed, wiping everything out. I mean, you might be tempted to think that, mightn't you, when you read words like fire. But this day of destruction is also a day of cleansing and renewal. Think of what happened back at the flood. Floodwaters came upon the whole world in in universal judgment. The old wicked order swept away. But then the waters receded. And a new world order appeared on the very same earth. And that's the idea with this coming day. It's why verse 13 speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. The word that's used for new there means something that's new in quality or nature. 
It's a word that you would use for, for something that exists that's put to better use, rather than something that's made new from scratch. And so in other words, there's some degree of continuity between this present world and the world that's to come. That's partly why Ben read from Isaiah chapter 65 at the start. Peter says in verse 13 that, that this new heaven and earth is in keeping with his promise. And you say, well, where, where is it promised? And Isaiah 65 is one such place you'd point to. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth, says Isaiah 65 verse 17. And how's that new heavens and new earth described in Isaiah chapter 65? Well, it's in terms very familiar to us. It sounds rather like the world we're currently living in. People building houses and dwelling in them. Planting vineyards, eating fruits. However metaphorical that might or might not be, the point is that there is continuity. It won't be as though we've somehow landed on Mars. It will be something like this world. Only so much better. Isaiah says there'll be no laboring in vain. No miscarriage. No animals fighting each other. It will be like this world, only so, so much greater. It's the same world, but, but of a whole different order. Because come back to verse 13 of our passage. It will be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Righteousness finds its home in this coming world. The shadow of the fall has been swept away. All its bitter fruit we were lamenting earlier. That which we taste so continually in this world, all of that will be done away with. As Revelation chapter 21 tells us of this new heaven and earth, God will dwell amongst his people and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I mean, of course these things will be done away with. Because the unrighteousness that brings it all about will be utterly gone. Unrighteousness is just so all-pervasive in this world that, that you just can't imagine how astonishingly brilliant that will be. But it will be brilliant. Beyond our wildest imaginations. Continuity with this present world. But a new heaven and earth where righteousness dwells. God's will will be done perfectly. On earth as it is in heaven. What a day. Is it any wonder that Romans 8 says that all creation groans for that day? That's the future for this world. Of course that glorious future is guaranteed because of what we were looking at this morning in Psalm 22. Our forsaken king purchasing a people for himself. He broke the curse. Defeated sin and death. So that unrighteousness and all its horrid effects might be dealt with and gone at last on that great last day. And so where does that leave us? Well, Peter spells it out three times in our verses. Verse 12, you are to look forward to the day of God. Verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, we're to look forwards to the future. And when my, my little daughter Ellie sees food being brought to her, she'll often break into a smile, start grunting excitably and nod her head up and down. 
Well, that's the idea. That our spiritual taste buds are to be aroused. That we're to have an expectancy for it. Eagerly awaiting that coming day. Because the future for this world is very bright indeed. Do you look forward to that? Our tendency can be to reduce the gospel into individualistic terms. To think of it as being all about me and Jesus. You know, he rescues me from my sins so that I can have a relationship with him and be with him forever. Well, that's all fine and good insofar as it goes. But if that's the sum total of our future thinking, then we'd rather diminish the glory of what God is doing in this world. Our hope is a cosmic hope. The American pastor Ray Ortland puts it like this. He says, how big is your hope? Is the wingspan of your hope enough to get you soaring? Is your hope big enough, imaginative enough, with with wolves and lions and lambs thrown in for good measure? Hope on this grand scale. This is the gospel. It is big. It offers both the prospect of personal intimacy with God forever and a renewed world of peace and righteousness. It isn't just one or the other. God has a plan for you and for this whole world. The Lord Jesus Christ died for this and he will not be denied. What a hope we have. Look forwards to the future. But that then leads very inevitably into our second point, which is to say that we're to live now in the light of it. Live now in the light of it. Perhaps you've heard that phrase that someone is so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly use. Their heads apparently so far stuck up in the clouds that they make no impact at all in this world. And Peter would say to us that that is a load of baloney. The whole reason he focuses on the future here is because of the way it transforms our life in the present. You see the explicit connection, for example, in verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed, future, what kind of people ought you to be? Present. Or again in verse 14, since you are looking forward to this future, make every effort present. We're to be so heavenly minded that we are of supreme earthly use. And so let's tease out then three interconnected ways that that future focus transforms present life. First, we're to live godly lives, verses 11, 12, and 14. I mean, that's surely obvious, isn't it? If we're longing for a new world in which righteousness dwells, how can we live in an unrighteous way in the here and now? Indeed, it's actually a contradiction in terms for a Christian to do so. Given that Peter speaks about the Apostle Paul later in this passage, it seems only appropriate to refer to something Paul says at this point. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. I think the older NIV says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. But our NIV has it much better. It's not just saying that the Christian is a new creation, although that is true. That Literally in the original it is, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. In other words, every time someone's converted, it's an inbreaking of the new creation into this present world order. They're an invader that's arrived from the new heaven and earth ahead of time. An invader from that world where righteousness dwells. 
And so then, as an invader from that world, it would be an utter contradiction for a Christian to live an unrighteous life. And yet, when we lose sight of the future, an ungodly life often prevails. We see this world as our home, rather than thinking that we're just passing through. And so we chase the good life now, living materialistic, self-centered lives, doing as we please, forgetting the judgment seat before which we'll one day stand. And so perhaps our senses become dull and to poor. Or what we say with our lips seems uh, inconsequential to us. Or how we use our time appears to be ours to do as we please. We live ungodly lives. But when our focus is on the future, our way of life is transformed. It's just the logical response. Look again at verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. You see, our lives aren't asked to do as we please. We're instruments put to better use. We're set apart to serve God in every area of life. Not just Sunday-only Christians who come to worship on Sunday and then live as we see fit Monday through Saturday. No, in all our conduct, every single word, thought and deed, our attitude is to be what pleases the Lord. Somehow such lives speed the coming of the day of the Lord. That's what verse 12 says. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Exactly how that works, I'm not quite sure. Perhaps the idea is that in the sovereignty of God, such holy and godly lives are used to hasten his purposes. The elect gathered in through holy and godly lives, proclaiming the gospel powerfully, getting it out to a needy world. Perhaps that's the idea. But whatever. If we're longing for that day because our focus is on the future, then what a motivation to live holy and godly lives now. Knowing that somehow they speed that day. They press the fast forwards button. Such lives are viewed from a different angle in verse 14. They're described as spotless and blameless. That's language from the sacrificial system. You'd take an animal to sacrifice that that was without spot and unblemished, that was blameless. Peter actually uses the same words of Christ in 1 1 Peter 1, verse 19, when he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so Peter's saying to us, if we're focused on the future... Christ-like lives are called for, sacrificial lives. We present our bodies as, as a living sacrifice, living in obedience to his word, saying, not my will, but yours be done. Is this the kind of life you're living? If the answer is no, could it just be that you've lost your focus on the future? Time meditating on the hope of glory is never time wasted. Living now in light of then means living godly lives. It also means living patient lives. Verse 15. It can be easy to become impatient, can't it? We're longing for the new heaven and earth. We're wanting to speed the day. And that's good and right. 
But we can easily slip into being like the young child on the car journey, going on holiday, crying out in exasperation, are we nearly there yet? But if we're thinking properly about the future, we'll be sober-minded in the present. Peter says in verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. You get the same thing back in verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Don Carson tells the story of a student at his seminary who wanted to sit an exam early so that they could fly off somewhere before the end of term. Despite the many protestations of this student, the seminary's principal steadfastly refused. I mean, imagine that, not letting someone do an exam early. But there we are. But the day of the exam came, and the students sat their exam with everyone else, whilst the plane that they'd hoped to fly on had a tragic accident, killing everyone on board. The principal's patience had brought his students salvation. And so it is with God's. I hear you've had the joy of seeing your baptistry open this past year. What a great thing. But suppose the Lord had returned, say, say, a year prior to that occasion. Where would those folks be now? The Lord's patience means our salvation. And so as God's people, looking to the future with this perspective means that we can live patient lives in the present. The circumstances of this life are not meaningless. History is heading somewhere. You might be enduring all kinds of struggles tonight. You might be rightly longing that the Lord would just return and sweep it all away. And yet you balance that with resting in his sovereignty, patiently enduring whatever wounds we bear on our path to glory, trusting that he does all things well, working out his perfect plans and purposes to gather his elect in, even working through us in our struggle, in our weakness. We might not have a clue how he's doing that. But we say with the hymn writer, Whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though it might not be our chosen timetable, we submit to his sovereign plans. Our Lord's patience means salvation. But then thirdly and finally, we live stable lives. We live stable lives. Verses 16 to 18. You see, if we're focused on the future, then that puts us on a collision course with this present evil age. We're invaders ahead of time from the new creation in which unrighteousness dwells. And our unrighteous world doesn't like that. Men and women love darkness rather than light. As such, they seek to do anything to blow you off course. To snare you back in, into living ungodly lives with no focus or desire for the future. And their devices are many and subtle. One that Peter's been especially warning about in this letter is this. The kind of invisible invasion of false teachers into the church. It seems that these false teachers were, were particularly abusing Paul's writings to serve their ends. I presume that's why Peter suddenly mentions Paul in verses 15 and 16. So he says, verse 16, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. 
I chuckle to myself every time I read that, because as I read to Peter, I'm often inclined to think, well, Peter, you're not always that easy to understand yourself. But somehow Paul's wisdom has been distorted by these people. And whatever the particular scripture being twisted, the point is this, their aims are evil, and they do so, verse 16, to their own destruction. And so Peter says to us, forewarned is forearmed. And don't think that it couldn't happen even at somewhere like Emmanuel Church. At verse 17 he says, therefore dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Be on guard. Stay alert. Watch out for the promised scoffers and skeptics who pervert the truth of God's words. Be like the soldier on sentry duty, wearing the full armor of God. Constant vigilance. That's what's called for. And do you see the importance again of a clear focus on the future for this? If you know the promises of God that, that Peter reminds us of throughout his letter, and if you believe them for all they're worth, then you won't fall away. You won't apostatize. You won't fall from your secure position. But this staying on God, it isn't meant to be a static thing. The best defense is progress. It's like when you're on a running machine, if you've ever had the the misfortune of being on one of those things. If you think to yourself, well, I can take it easy. I'll just stand still. You'll soon be in for a rather nasty surprise. Progress comes from pumping those legs, from going forwards. It's the same in the Christian life. Standing still is actually going backwards. Hence verse 18. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You see how we go forwards there? Two things. We grow in grace. Grace is what we received from our Saviour when we first came to faith. His undeserved kindness to us. And we're to grow in our experience of such grace throughout our lives, abounding in thanksgiving to him as we see all that he's done for us. And then we're to grow in knowledge, the knowledge he gives us of himself, of our Lord and Savior. Such knowledge doesn't come to us in a vacuum. It's not somehow magically zapped to us. It comes as we search the scriptures, as we hear it preached each week. His Spirit brings this knowledge to us so that we grow in it. And so as we grow in our experience of His grace and our knowledge of Him as Lord and Saviour, we'll live stable lives. Moving forwards is the best defense against falling away in the Christian life. Because we long ever more for that day when we will see our Lord and Saviour face to face. Look, everyone lives in the present in the light of the future. Are you living now in light of the hope of glory? In light of that coming new heaven and earth where righteousness dwells? A future focus brings a godly, patient, stable life. If that's what you're doing, then praise God. Yes, really, praise God. That's that's the note Peter rightly strikes in the final words of his letter. He says, to him be glory both now and forever. Or literally, to the day of eternity. How fitting that is, because when all is said and done, such lives grounded on future focus, that they're not the product of our own striving and efforts, they're all of his wonderful grace. 
We'll be in that new heaven and earth where righteousness dwells, not, not because of any merit of our own, but because we've been clothed with the perfect righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the praise doesn't go to us, does it? We don't pat ourselves on the back thinking, oh, aren't I doing ever so well? And I perish the thoughts. We say with Peter, to him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.